Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist based in Harley Street, London, specializing in extreme fat loss for busy executives and entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur myself, I like to find slick solutions to health challenges. And today, to help me with that, I have Dr. Vic Chamoon. Is that correct, doctor? That's right. Thank you. Is a consultant urologist with a special interest in headaches and migraines with multiple sclerosis also and Parkinson's disease. Today, we're going to focus on headaches and migraines. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, You're welcome. So what inspired you to become a doctor and why did you choose to specialize in neurology? Well, it's a very interesting area. I mean, it's at the end of the day, the bit of the body with which we think, with which we feel, with which we act, which is the central command for our body. So if I was going to pick any part of the body to be interested in, it's a pretty good bet. Um, it, the problems that arise from it are, are often quite demanding, and so solving them is satisfying. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting speciality. Uh, yeah. What I didn't expect was that it was also a speciality which is evolving. Um, the treatments are coming about at a very rapid pace, and this is something I didn't know when I first went into it, but it's been serendipity that uh, this has happened. So it's also been a really great speciality to be in. Yes, and I've experienced a few different types of headaches, sometimes because I'm dehydrated. And also, I used to get sharp pains. I had a whiplash uh, injury from a car accident, Mm. and um, a nerve leaving my C4, I think, was attaching to my skull, and it was tugging on. And I was having amitriptyline, which was quite pleasurable, I have to say, but it's not really my thing to take pills. Um, But uh, but, yeah. You're the first person, I think, who's who said that amitriptyline was pleasurable. That's, that's really <laughs> nice to know, actually. I didn't realize. There must be a subgroup of patients there who love it and just don't tell me. No, no, but I, I, don't, I don't believe in using Western medication as much as possible. Uh, and I okay. think that there's a lot of healthy lifestyle choices we can do to, pre- to prevent these from happening. But um, it, it's interesting. What's actually happening in the body when you have a headache? And how is that different from a migraine? Right. Well, actually, Stephanie, to understand headaches, I think one of the really key points is to understand some uh, little bit of basic biology. And to be honest, it's really hard to understand headaches without it. Um, the brain itself is our central sense organ. Um, it's really a, just a mass of electrical wires. It's about 100 trillion electrical wires all put together. And uh, when we sense the world in any way, uh, we do so because we activate electrical circuits within the brain. So uh, what people often don't appreciate is we don't see with our eyes. We see with the back of the brain. When light hits the eyes, all the eyes really do is convert that light energy into an electric pulse and sends it to the back of the brain. And that's where we do our seeing. And similarly, we don't actually hear with our ears either. Sound hits the air, gets converted to electricity, gets sent to the sides of the brain where it gets activated. And uh, that's how we hear. And smelling and tasting from the front of the brain, motion sensation from deep parts of the brain. Very importantly, all pain is sensed because we activate the pain pathways of the brain. It's not that activating the pain pathways causes something to happen that uh, causes pain. It is pain. So uh, it's a uh, uh, fascinating with looking at the brain as a big 
big, massive electrical object with areas lighting up and shutting down at all times. So um, when you talk about pain generally, it doesn't matter whether it's a headache or a migraine or somebody stepping on your toe. Mm -hmm. What you're really talking about is why did that particular part of the brain get activated? Now, in the case of uh, headaches, um, there tends to be an area of the brain, typically around the brain stem area, the stem of the brain, uh, which gets activated and then that signal sends signals out to various other parts as well. So headaches in general refer to activation of uh, brain stem uh, pathways. Uh, migraine uh, itself is one type of headache. Uh, to be honest, it was it's a, a type of headache that was originally defined purely on a group of people clustering together a bunch of symptoms. So really it's a committee that sits around and says, if you have a headache and that's on one side of the head or predominantly one side, is pulsatile, lasts more than a few hours, is associated with some sensitivity, nausea, vomiting, then we call this migraine. So actually migraine originally was defined purely by clustering together a bunch of symptoms. Uh, now, of course, uh, many years down the road, we can interpret the same uh, set of uh, features to physical uh, events taking place within the, within the brain, areas of the brain getting activated. Uh, in particular, in the case of migraine, what we now know is that it again involves activation of the brainstem, like most headaches, but um, it does so in a particular fashion, in a particular manner. And in the case of severe migraine attacks, one of the most interesting things that happens is that the electric currents travel the wrong way along wires, uh, end up going to where they shouldn't, and uh, then at the end, liberating chemicals at the end. So this is very recent research. And uh, so some of the treatments now are, uh, some of the pharmacological treatments that are used are now focusing on trying to stop those chemicals being released or having an effect. So um, migraine is one type of headache and it's defined clinically, but it clearly has um, some physiological basis as well. Uh, that's extraordinary. Is that too much? <laughs> no, it, no, it's, it's not too much. Um, my brain is expanding to accommodate for the information as we speak. So th thank you for enlightening. Um, is there a link between headaches and obesity? Yes, there is actually. Uh, you're more likely to have migraines if you are overweight. Um, you are and why uh, is more likely that? to have worse. Well, we don't know is the strong answer. Oh. Um, we actually don't know the link. It's an association. If you're if you're if you're overweight, you're like more likely to have headaches. The more overweight you are, the more likely you're, to, you're likely to have headaches. And this relationship is particularly true among younger people. It that the correlation is lost later in life, but among the younger group, that's the case. Um, for most headaches, we don't really know the mechanism, the connection between the two. What causes what, or are both? being caused by a third uh, event. So we don't know why there is, but there definitely is a link. Um, mm -hmm. There are certain headaches, which are non-migrant headaches, where the link is obvious. So for instance, there's a type of headache that develops because the pressure within the head rises. And it's called idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that a lot of that is to do with uh, the flow of blood into the head and out of the head. And we know that when your body weight is 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 is, is large, then uh, blood has a more difficult time getting out of the head. To be honest, and as a result, the pressure rises. So. Uh, for a few conditions, there can be a, a mechanism uh, hypothesized, but for migraine and for tension-type headaches, which are the most common headaches, um, it's only really an association that we know. And our, our clients are overweight and or obese. Uh, well, they're either overweight or obese, actually. Uh, and they are busy and they work in the city and they're entrepreneurs and they, they have very little time. They have a very stressful lifestyle. How does stress affect headaches and migraines? Stress is one of the other factors that um, is strongly correlated with both my, with headaches in general, uh, with tension-type headaches in particular, and uh, also with migraine. So, um, yes, there's a, a, a strong correlation. And in the case of stress, one can uh, make a hypothesis as to why uh, the link exists. Because um, what I first said was that headaches and pain uh, are related to the way in which the brain gets activated and the pain centers get activated. And in general, if you are under stress, uh, when their body um, is perfused with a lot more adrenaline, when your uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system is activated, your brain is more likely, more ready uh, to become activated and therefore overactivated. Uh, and in the case of migraines, it, uh, it's obviously the pain areas we're talking about, but it's more likely that those areas will get activated. And what lifestyle choices do we have to adopt to not get headaches and migraines? I think the number one thing to do is to try and get a good, refreshing sleep at night. Um, it's probably the most powerful factor that will allow uh, you to have a, a day free of headaches. It's very difficult for migraineurs in particular to achieve, by the way, and there are reasons for that. Mm -hmm. uh, during the daytime, um, one should... Uh, consider developing or learning some sort of relaxation technique which can uh, bring down the brain activation, uh, techniques such as mindfulness or meditation or yoga or even, you know, coloring books, focusing on something for a prolonged period of time to try and shut down all the other brain circuits. You should obviously avoid the most obvious stressors such as hunger, dehydration, bad clothing, poor posture, um, should uh, try and get regular exercise. Now, exercise is a strange, strange beast. Um, overall, regular exercise has been shown to reduce headache frequency and severity. But in small number of individuals, headaches can actually trigger a headache. That's Sorry, interesting. Uh, exercise that's... can actually trigger a headache. Yes, that's very interesting. Some of our clients have reported that to us too, particularly with this new wave of high-intensity interval training. Uh, I'm not saying that there's any necess necessary correlation, but we all have to learn about our bodies. And I have noticed that with stressed out individuals who also go into high-intense training, they tend to have headaches or, or they can't sleep at night. So there is obviously an effect. Yeah, there, there's clearly a subgroup effect. And I think that the key to this is how uh, one exercises and when one exercises. Uh, I think um, um, for most of us, 
we probably do not do high intensity exercises. I walk. So for somebody like me, I'm sure that exercise would help my headache frequency. Okay, and and um, what effect does diet have on our neurology as well? Um, I know that certain foods are inflammatory, certain foods are anti-inflammatory. That can have an effect. Caffeine can have an effect on our neurology. What experience have you had between nutrition and neurology? This is a really contentious area. I mean, one of the big problems with diet are um, or is having good studies or proper studies. It's very, very difficult to do proper studies with diet. Uh, you can imagine why, trying to monitor lots of people, trying to get controlled trials and ensure that the data we have is, is reliable. It's very, very difficult uh, to achieve. Um, the overall feeling that we know is that if you are hungry, you will generate headaches. Um, if you stress your body, for instance, if you take a large load of sugar and then you have an insulin reaction or hypoglycemic effect afterwards, then again, um, that's a form of stress and you can generate headaches. When it comes to everything else, it's more difficult. Um, you find very mixed reports. So some people say uh, something will cause them a headache and other group will say no, it makes things better for them. So I have to say I'm going to, I'm going to pass on the diet side just because the data is so weak on, on trying to suggest one way or the other. Uh, personally, I think you should, you know, if you uh, eat healthily and healthily means the usual things that we read about, uh, reducing saturated fats, reducing red meat content, um, uh, ensuring increased levels of uh, fiber and fruit, um, remaining well hydrated, cutting down on sugar, all of those things. The, the likelihood is it's going to be beneficial for headaches and migraine. Yes, absolutely. And also reducing stress. I liked your piece on mindfulness, meditation, yoga. I think that that's all really good. And um, modern stresses can stimulate the fight or flight response. Can you help us understand the parasympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and how they interplay? Yeah, it's odd, actually, Stephanie. Among the neurology community, we don't discuss parasympathetic and sympathetic systems in the way that I think is often discussed outside of, of that speciality. Well, that's interesting. In Tell sense, me more. In, in a sense, we it is part of... Uh, obviously a very important part of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. It's the part of the nervous system that deals with uh, monitoring our body and performing uh, actions in the body which we are unaware of and are happy, which is happening in the background. And uh, clearly from an evolutionary point of view, a certain number of these actions were grouped together. So it's a rather like when you go back home after uh, a hard day, um, you'll, you know, turn on the, the lights, turn on the kettle, put on the heating. Well, it's, it makes sense to put all of those actions under one command so that every time you go into the house, they all happen. Uh, and, and the body is designed in a similar way that when you are uh, in a fright or flight situation, when you're being threatened, when you have to run, then a whole bunch of different uh, organs need to be turned on simultaneously, so your heart will need to work faster, your airways will need to open up so it's to be able to take more oxygen, your gut will have to stop uh, occupy, uh, taking up resource and shut down for that period of time, uh, and all of these have to happen 
simultaneously. So the nervous system is sort of organized that all of that happens as, uh, as, as one unit, hence the sympathetic nervous system or the flight or fright nervous system. And similarly, when you're resting and uh, other activities can proceed without worry, for instance, uh, digesting our food, carrying out our metabolism, that's when the parasympathetic system uh, turns on. Now, we know this, and but in neurology, we don't use it as much. The prime, we tend to focus very much on the individual components. So one, of the, one example would be, uh, I would be very concerned with, say, blood pressure and, and blood flow. Uh, through the body, um, and especially in many diseases like Parkinson's disease and and uh, multiple sclerosis, when uh, people can uh, fail to distribute their blood properly, or when they can have a, a postural hypotension when they stand up and feel dizzy. Now, this is a failure of a part of the nervous system, namely the the sympathetic nervous system. And so we tend to deal with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system specific to a particular organ system. In this case, the blood pressure, it might be that my uh, colleagues who are dealing with the continence uh, and, and bladder function will be dealing again with uh, the, 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 the autonomic nervous system from that perspective. But as a group, as a, as, as a totality, we rarely deal with it in, as, as, as one unit. And that's not everybody. There are autonomic nervous system specialists, and there are rare conditions, we call them dysautonomias, where, in fact, you do have to deal with the whole autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic, as whole, how can I put it, total units rather than individual organs. Yes, that's interesting. And on that note, um, let's take a moment to look at mental health and anxiety disorders and depression. I know some of these can be affected by neurology and the nervous systems. Uh, what, what experience do you have on that? Well, um, the topics of anxiety and depression, as you quite rightly said, are primarily uh, disciplines dealt with by clinical psychologists and psychiatrists rather than neurologists. However, you're absolutely right. It's part and parcel of what we have to deal with, even though it's not uh, our primary uh, material. So uh, we know that, for instance, mood plays a role in headache. We know that when people are depressed, they're more likely to get headaches. Of course, when they're getting a lot of headaches, they're more likely to get depressed. Uh, similarly with anxiety, as I mentioned before, if you're anxious, you turn on your sympathetic nervous system, your brain gets sensitized, you're more likely to get brain activation. You're more likely to be uh, uh, sensitive to uh, noxious stimuli and you're more likely to get headaches uh, and this is all related uh, to anxiety and equally well when somebody has a bad headache and a severe headache and a migraine can be one of the most severe headaches uh, known to man um, it can generate anxiety and so it works the other way around as well so uh, these mood issues are are linked with what we have to deal with of course this is just with migraine these are very important part of other conditions where they're even more important. So when we look at conditions such as multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease or any of the other neurodegenerative diseases, um, mood uh, issues are, are, are a major factor over here. Uh, remember that anxiety, depression, all of these feelings from the neurologist's perspective also represent neural circuits, pathways in the brain. And in the case of some of these neurodegenerative diseases, not migraine, but other ones where there's actual structural change to the brain, the circuits themselves can get affected. 
um, so that people with, say, Parkinson's disease may be having depression, not because of a response to uh, life or to genetic factors, but because the very part of the brain that manages our mood is being damaged. So um, uh, it's part and parcel of our, what we deal with, but uh, perhaps it's also uh, even more something which probably the clinical psychologists and the psychiatrists would be handling. Absolutely. Well, in, in our clinic on Harley Street, we look after obese clients who need a multitude of uh, disciplines to help them on their journey. And uh, a lot of uh, clients who have emotional eating, depression, maybe an eating disorder, neurology can come into that and, and how to manage their condition so that their transformation uh, is, is more smooth and successful because um, some of our clients are with us for a year um, if they've got a lot of weight to lose and uh, we always have to refer them to different peoples along the, along the way depending on what they're going through. So uh, let, let's talk through a success story that you've had. You've helped hundreds of thousands of patients across your career so there must be one that stands out for you that you're really proud of, that you really helped them and transformed people's lives. Yes. Um, I think one of the points you've just made now is actually very pertinent. Uh, you mentioned about um, the, uh, the, 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 the sensitivity of the brain, the, 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 the fact that all these different disciplines can be connected together and in your clinic you have a very multidisciplinary approach. And, uh, and what, you're, what you're essentially alluding to and what uh, I also very strongly believe in is that um, there's a concept called central sensitivity. In some people, their brains are genetically hardwired to activate very easily and therefore get overactivated. And they're much more prone to all the different symptoms which relate to the brain circuit getting overactivated. So migraine is just one manifestation. It's when the pain circuit is activated, or rather the pain circuits relating to the head get overactivated. But if the pain circuits linked to the body get overactivated, we start to call this fibromyalgia. If you start to get um, easy activation of bladder filling, we call that irritable or over, uh, irritable or overactive bladder. If you get activated by your uh, gut movements, your peristaltic movements, we call it irritable bowel syndrome. If we start to get uh, tingling in the hands and feet, we call that paresthesia or dysesthesia. Um, uh, you can go through a whole bunch of other symptoms, including chronic fatigue, um, brain fog, difficulty in, in thinking clearly. A whole host of symptoms seem to link with each other. Uh, and, and produce this phenomenon called central sensitivity. And uh, my case I remember very well is um, a very old chap. He was about 90, and he came to the hospital because he had a prosthetic uh, skull. He had a portion of his skull that he, he when he was a child, he'd, he'd hit his head and and, and, and a large amount of skull had been removed from surgery then. And he had a tantalum a prosthetic. Tantalum is a metal they used to use in the 1920s or 1910, that sort of time, uh, to replace the uh, bone of the, of the skull. And uh, that was fixed then. The plan was for the size to be increased as uh, he got older because, of course, his head would grow. But that was never done. Oh, my goodness. And this was... This was uh, 
this was before the National Health Service, remember, in 1948, you had to have money for these things to happen. And so if you didn't have money, you didn't get things done. And um, so he arrived at the hospital with really acute pain um, over his head. He's now 90. And the problem was that... Um, because his brain was growing and there wasn't enough space for his brain to grow. Yeah, I mean, he had a slightly deformed skull, but he was in, in pain. He'd been going through pain. He was, he was in pain that had been going on now for decades, but just been getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, so the plan eventually was that that to remove this plate and put uh, a, a different a different prosthesis in the place. Problem was that at this age, with his comorbidities, his heart problems, his lung problems, um, there was a strong chance that he wouldn't survive the surgery. So there was a lot of tension about this. Do you do something, uh, do you perform surgery when um, there's a high likelihood of death? But at the same time, if you don't do the surgery, then um, uh, this person's in agony. So it's a, it's a, it was a very difficult scenario. And uh, I went to see him. And um, what was clear was this chap also had central sensitivity. He was somebody who suffered from migraine. Now, this is a totally unrelated issue. You know, you're taking the story from the patient. And he gives you a story of lifelong migraine. And, of course, what you start to realize is somebody with migraine has central sensitivity. They will notice pain. They will notice things far more. And it just crossed my mind at that time that, listen, rather than doing surgery, why do we treat his migraine and then just see how much pain he gets from this prosthetic skull? So we aggressively treated this patient for his migraine. Uh, and this wasn't just lifestyle measures. We used fairly potent drugs, actually. We had to bring down the brain activation in an effort to stop not just the migraine, but actually the general central, sen central sensitivity. And as a result, incredibly, he stopped feeling the pain from his skull prosthesis. And he basically avoided surgery. Uh, That's incredible. And, and this is the first time he'd been properly treated for migraine. So this is somebody who was on his way, frankly, to death, uh, who through migraine treatment, appropriate migraine treatment, uh, ended up um, feeling a lot better on many other fronts as well. That must feel very rewarding for you. What a story. That's amazing. How does it feel like for you to give somebody a second lease of life? It doesn't last long. We are <laughs> the next patient within five minutes. <laughs> this is a busy National Health Service. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, what services do you offer? Where are you based? And how can we get in touch? If we, if we have a neurological uh, c concern that we want to consult with you on, how can we get in touch with you? So anybody who wants to get me can just... Uh, can just type in 9harleystreet.com. It's the number 9, 9harleystreet.com, uh, and, uh, and I'm the only neurologist there, Big Shamoon. Okay, thank you very much, Doctor. Uh, that was nice of you to come on to the show, and thank you for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for helping the Urban Health Podcast keeping busy people healthy. Take care.